Father, with what wonderful words we have praised you this morning. Speaking of our position before the throne, which is to us not a throne of condemnation, but a throne of grace, that we boldly approach in Christ, covered in his righteousness, united to him by the Spirit, our sins washed away, his life given to us, which is indeed the very life of God. And so we gather as those who are in union with Christ, who hear your voice and delight in it, and follow you as your sheep. And so I pray that in these few moments that we have, together that your word would be to us, light into our path, lamp into our feet, that we would gain wisdom, that we would be encouraged in righteousness, that you might be exalted in and through us. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, so we began last week with this matter of confronting sin, confronting sin and error in the church. And as we noted that that is an extremely, uh, well, distasteful, uh, we might feel, part of body life, but an absolutely essential part of our relating to one another, our relating to one another as people who are in Christ. It is a means that God, by His own wisdom, has established. It is a means by which He would then give care and protection and extend His love to His people. Namely, in how we relate to one another and the ministry that we have uh, to one another, which includes the idea of confronting sin. It includes the idea of confronting sin. Now, of course, this isn't always popular, we would understand that, because to confront sin is never an enjoyable process. It's very hard uh, to do that, and it's very hard uh, to receive that. And yet it is a necessary part of Christian love. And sometimes it's forgotten, maybe in the church, because of a diminished view of God's love that we have as those who profess Christ. God's love is often viewed only merely, really, as sentimentality as sort of a grandfatherly kind of love towards his erring erring and straying creatures who really need no harm by their misbehavior, and he kind of winks at it and overlooks much of it. But the idea of God's love is a holy love, a love that is both flowing from his holy nature and is designed to produce that same holiness in his people. That kind of love is not generally what is promoted in churches. And so it's some kind of a diminished kind of love that doesn't very often include the reality of addressing sin, of addressing sin. But God has not only committed himself to that, we see many examples of that throughout Scripture. Some of the most extreme examples come to us in those moments within the history of his people where he wanted to highlight the fact of his holiness. He wanted to accent the reality that he is a holy God who requires holiness from his people. Some examples we might think of, of course, in the early parts of Scripture, the flood with Noah, he destroyed the whole world. That's not so much a a discipline or a corrective kind of discipline as it is that judgment that comes on all who fail to honor him. We see examples of that in Nadab and Abihu after God established the tabernacle, his presence dwelling among his people in the Old Testament. They came and they offered to God strange fire and what happened? You remember? Fire came out and consumed them. And so concerned with his glory God was that he told Aaron whose sons they were, you better not act sad that I did that. You better maintain your worship and your role as high priest to the nation of Israel, even though your sons just died before your eyes. God takes his holiness very seriously. Uh, We see at the beginning of the church, in Acts chapter 5, we read about it. With Ananias and Sapphira, they, they came and they sought to deceive the apostles with an amount of money that they had actually gained from the sale of their land. They, in fact, could have kept that money righteously if they would have been honest about it. But, in fact, they instead tried to deceive and appear more righteous than they actually were. And God wanted to confront this sin and accent in this early stages of the growth of the church his righteousness. That he was a God who's extending grace and yet he is a God who will not be trifled with. And that righteousness is a part of grace. And so if you remember what happened, 
First Ananias and then his wife Sapphira were both struck dead before the Lord and before all of those witnesses. And interestingly, instead of the church diminishing, the church actually grew in the respect that it had of the watching culture and the church continued to grow. The point of those illustrations is merely this, that the love of God and the love of God for his people includes a concern for holiness, concern for holiness. And in light of our topic and Again, what we'll look at through Scripture is God has committed himself. He has actually ordained that his expression of this holy kind of love among his people includes the life that we share together in that we actually would confront sin in the body, that we would confront sin and error. It's not a matter of being harsh. It's not a matter of being overly censorious. It is ultimately a matter of love. However, because we are sinful people, because we are by nature proud, and we are tending to self-exaltation, and our natural uh, default position is self-righteousness, there is also the danger of this very good thing that God has given to us as a responsibility as His people. There's the danger of a very bad thing, and that's what we looked at in part last week, that idea of judgmentalism judgmentalism. So what is good, the need to point out sin and error, can, because of our sinfulness and our sinful tendencies, be applied in a wrong way. And that is in that self-righteous and self-condemning way that we saw so often in the life of the Pharisees. But we don't need to find ourselves, confine ourselves to the pages of the New Testament and Pharisees. We see plenty of examples of that very often, I would imagine, in our own hearts. I've certainly seen it in my heart. And you may have seen it in yours and, of course, in others. And that is that addressing of sin from a position of law rather than from a position of love. Now, last week we began this look, as I mentioned, at loving confrontation by considering the difference between or introducing the difference between the sin of judging others but also the necessity of addressing sin. As I mentioned last week, we focused primarily on the sinful ways that we judge one another in a way that is wrong, in a way that is condemnable uh, by God. Well, I want to finish that up this morning out of Matthew chapter 7 and then move into the next section. We'll have two more weeks on this, this week and next week. Uh, and move into this next section on the more positive look uh, to this morning on actually confronting sin and the necessity of loving confrontation. Now, I want to begin by going back to Matthew chapter 7 and finishing up very briefly our look at verses 1 through 6. And then after that, we will be jumping around to several other passages. So, uh, you know, get ready. Uh, we're going to do sword drills a little bit later. So be ready to hold your Bibles up and we'll see who gets there first. But let's begin actually by reading Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6 to to introduce our thoughts this morning. Matthew chapter 7. The words of our Lord. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye? But do not notice the log that is in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye and behold, the log is in your own eye. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces." These are tremendous words by our Lord, as we well know, and as we noted just very briefly last week, how often that's taken out of context and, and used in a wrong way. In other words, the command not to judge is a blanket uh, excuse to, to never point out another sin, but really that's just a cover-up for personal sin, because it means if I don't point out your sin, you won't point out my sin. We'll all just live happily in our disobedience to the Lord. That's clearly not what he means, and that's uh, not how it was intended to be used. However, it is a very clear warning that we are to be, in our judgment, very aware of the sin of taking a place that is not our own, namely to condemn 
others, to stand in the place of God, as it were, in that, in that way. And so the kind of judging that he's talking about here is that condemning, self-righteous, essentially legal judging rather than that kind of confronting sin out of love. We noted last week a few ways that we do sinfully judge one another. And all of these are identified in Scripture. We sinfully judge one another when we judge one another's motives. Those hidden things that we can't see because we're not God and that we leave for God to judge on the proper day. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 talks about that. That's not our job. We, it's sinful to judge by appearance only. That is quick kind of judgment, superficial kind of judgments. It's a sin to judge on personal preferences or views of righteousness that are not explicit in Scripture. Movies that you watch, uh, music that is listened to, whether to drink alcohol or not to drink alcohol, and the list goes on and on and on. Those things that are not explicitly forbidden in Scripture and yet form a part of a sense of righteousness that many have that if you do those things, then you're sinning, and if you don't do them, then you're somehow righteous. In other words, we create our own view of righteousness and don't pay attention to God's view of righteousness, which as a footnote, and we mentioned this last week, God is much more concerned with the generosity and the patience and the love and acceptance that we show to one another. And we're not talking about outright heresy and those kind of things. We're, we're excluding that. We're talking about normal Christian life and differences that Christians can have among one another. Romans 14, those who remember one day, those who don't recognize a day, so on and so forth. Uh, God is much more concerned, rather than the particularities of our particular positions, uh, He's much more concerned that we demonstrate love to one another. A patience with one another, an acceptance of one another. As he says in Romans 14, uh, to each one, his master, each master, a person stands or falls. That's not our job to judge somebody for where they differ from us. Uh, we, in fact, leave that to God. We are to accept them in the Lord inasmuch as they are believers. So it's sinful to judge motives, sinful to judge only by outward appearance, sinful to judge on personal preferences or views of righteousness that are not explicit in Scripture. It's sinful to judge on assumptions before having all the facts, and it's sinful to judge the spirituality of another based only on our own personal opinion. So those are all sinful ways that we judge one another. Let me, just to finish up our passage, just very briefly mention another aspect of this kind of judgment. Uh, this kind of judgment is not only sinful, but it's also foolish. It's also foolish. Uh, notice what he says in verse 2. For in the way that you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. In other words, this is a pretty serious warning. Now, it's, all, it's, it's possible to take this judgment that he's speaking of here in two ways. And when he says, you will be judged. Uh, that could either be... For some, the judgment of man, in other words, that you will receive from men the same kind of condemning, harsh attitude that you display towards men. Or it could mean that it's God's judgment. In other words, that if you display this kind of judgment that he's forbidding here, you in fact are identifying yourself in the category of the self-righteous and those who don't yet know the kindness and the reality of God. So in other words, then it would be God's judgment. I think the latter is probably the best way to take it, that it is a reference, a referring here to God's judgment. It's a very similar attitude that Jesus already identified in the Sermon on the Mount. And actually, uh, previously in chapter 6, verse 14, he said this, If you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. If you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. In other words... You will display yourself as one who has not yet understood the forgiveness of God. I think that's kind of the idea here. In James 2.13, he says this, Judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. In other words, one who is marked by a merciless kind of harshness in their approach to other sin is one who shows they have not themselves experienced the mercy of God toward them. Love is greater than all. Mercy is a part of love. He says later, or he goes on then again, Jesus said, For in the way that you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. So this is a serious warning. It's, it would be foolish then to invite the judgment of God in our life. 
by failing to demonstrate mercy and compassion and sincere care for one another rather than, uh, rather than just a harshness and a judgmental attitude. It's also foolish, he says, because it shows spiritual blindness. First of all, because it invites God's judgment uh, if we have that kind of condemning, harsh, legalistic attitude, but also because it shows spiritual blindness. Look at verse 3. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? And of course, Jesus is making a ridiculous kind of comparison here, but he's doing that to make the point all the more clear, which was a common way of teaching in which he does, of course, often. This is essentially the one that he's identifying as one who habitually is finding sin in others, but seldom considers their own sin, guilt, and weakness before God. In other words, they are masters at pointing out the faults and the sins of others, but they seem to have far less concern about their own sins, their private sins and open sins in their own life. They're not nearly as bothered by those. Again, this was characteristic of these religious leaders, but it's, it's our fallen hearts. It's, it's something that we all are well aware of and have experienced at some level or another. This is those, again, who are not nearly as bothered, humble, or upset about their sin, but they are extremely bothered and extremely upset about the sin of other people. One has said this, described it in this way. It's when looking for faults, use a mirror, not a telescope. That's a great way to say it, isn't it? The attitude we should have is when we look for faults, we should use a mirror and examine our own lives first and not a telescope that zeroes in on the minute problems in comparison to our own sin in another person's life. In other words, it is an attitude of humility. In fact, again, and this again uh, illustrates why the warning is so strong here and do not be judged. This is exactly the opposite of the attitude of those who are in the kingdom of God. Remember, what is the attitude of those who are in the kingdom of God? They are poor in spirit. There's a great poverty of soul in terms of personal righteousness that a true believer has because they realize they lack everything they need of themselves, that we're guilty and condemnable. There's no good thing that dwells in us of ourselves. Our hope is totally in what God has provided in Christ. Our righteousness is in Christ. And blessed are those who mourn, who are mourning over their sin and always wanting to turn from it, never happy with the disobedience, again, that is in our lives. So Jesus then warns here that to be judgmental invites God's judgment, and it also demonstrates a spiritual blindness uh, in our own lives. But it can also happen to believers. Again, we're, we're just addressing this very briefly here, but, but I would remind you of the one illustration, probably one of the greatest illustrations of that, of how even in a righteous believer's life, this sin can kind of creep in, and that would be the life of David. If you remember, David had sinned greatly. He had sinned with Bathsheba by committing adultery. He had sinned by murdering her husband. And then he continues to live on as the righteous king of Israel. God sends the prophet Nathan, if you'll remember, in 2 Samuel 12. Nathan comes and he gives him a parable about this rich man who went and took this little lamb from this poor man so that he might prepare a meal for his friends. And David was absolutely incensed at this reality. And you remember what he says, that man should die. And then what did Nathan say? You're that man. You're that man. But see, David was so blind to his sin that when he heard his par- that parable, he wasn't at all thinking of himself, though he was the one who was guilty of the very thing. And that's kind of the idea of what he's saying here, is that when we're having the wrong heart... Uh, a legalistic heart, a self-righteous heart, we can be so easily blind to our own sin, so easily blind to our own sin, uh, while we're very keen, keen to notice the sin in others. Now, although these are real dangers to avoid in terms of confronting sin in one another's life, it's also wrong to say then that we should not address sin. It's also wrong to say that we shouldn't address sin and disobedience in one another's life. As a matter of fact, here in this very short section of Scripture, uh, Jesus makes a judgment and calls on his people to make a judgment. He says, do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine. There's a discerning decision that's to be made by us, like who is the dogs, who are the dogs, and who are the swine to whom we should avoid giving correction. And of course... Uh, We're well familiar with Jesus' command to the church uh, in Matthew 18. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. 
then take along two others, then tell it to the church if they're unrepentant. And we'll look at many other examples this morning. But clearly we are to address sin in one another's life. But then how are we to do that? Well, Jesus addresses that next here in these, uh, Matthew chapter 7. He says in verse 5, You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. First take the log out of your own eye. In other words, we could say then that confrontation is to be done with humility. A humility that comes from a firm grasp of our own personal sin and need of grace. That's the attitude that marks, again, one who is in the kingdom. And it should be the attitude that marks us if we do have occasion to point out sin in another's life. We're to address sin in one another's life, but listen, only after and if we're dealing with sin in our own life. Okay, we can address it in another's only if we're dealing with sin in our own life. Only if we live with a proper perspective of our own sinfulness and need of grace. Only if we're actually mourning over our own sin. Jonathan Edwards, we're familiar with him, when he was but a teenager... He wrote, as you're familiar, or he began writing. This was over a span of time. He didn't do it like in one night. Uh, But over a span of time, he began writing what we know as his resolutions. Y'all have heard of the resolutions. Uh, If you ever can read those, it's worthy to read through. And be amazed that he was a teenager when he did it. Oh, that we would have written these things when we were teenagers uh, and had these kind of spiritual concerns. But nonetheless, number eight of Jonathan Edwards' resolution uh, reflects what Jesus is teaching here. He says this, and I quote, That he is resolved to act in all respects, both speaking and doing, as if nobody has been as vile as I. As if I had committed the same sins or had the same infirmities or failings as others. And to let the knowledge of their failings promote, promote nothing but shame in myself. And prove only an occasion of my confessing my own sins and misery to God. Isn't that great? Isn't that great? He's saying before I go to somebody else to confront their sin, I'm going to take it as an opportunity to be reminded of my own iniquity, of my own sin, of my own many failings before the God by which, for which I, I seek His grace and forgiveness all of the time. That is then an attitude of humility. An attitude of humility. And that's what Jesus is addressing here. First deal with the log that is in our own eye. But also note this, that this confrontation is to be done then with a genuine care for the welfare of the other person. In other words, it's to be done in love. Where do we get that? Look at verse 5 again. Actually, it's throughout this passage in the Sermon on the Mount. Look what he says. Then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Your brother's eye. What What a tender word that is. What a tender word that is. Jesus uses... Language here, as he does throughout, that emphasizes the context, yes, of a fellow Israelite, but also of a spiritual reality. Remember, Jesus himself said that the one who does the will of my Father in heaven, these are my brothers and my sisters and my mother and so forth. Jesus said after his resurrection that I go to my Father and your Father, my Father and your Father. In Hebrews 2, it says that he's not ashamed to call us brothers. There is a, such an intimate and wonderful sense of connection in this term. Such a picture of love in this term, brethren. We are of the same family. In Galatians 6.1, Paul says this, speaking to the Galatian church, Brethren, if anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. That is, Restore them as a brother. Restore them as a family member. In other words, we don't go to the person in whom we might have occasion to confront sin as an enemy. They're not the enemy. They are our brethren. They are not one to be rejected and treated harshly, but to be treated as a spiritual family member who God loves, and this is helpful to remember too, whom he loves as much as he loves you. (laughs) sometimes we feel like we might have the corner of God's love. But we need to remember that God loves and cares for and died for and is as interested in the person whom we might have occasion to confront sin as he is in our own lives. 
He loves us equally in Christ. And then we are to display God's own love to that person in Christ, even when it means at times rebuke and confrontation of sin. And then finally, as I mentioned already, Jesus does acknowledge that we needed to use discrimination and discernment. He says, do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine. So this kind of discernment takes maturity. It takes prayer. It takes a lot of thinking. It takes planning. It takes consideration before we would confront anyone. However, in the end, as the family of God, we are to care enough about each other care enough about the purity and testimony of the church to address sin. But again, our concern for sin in others must find its first expression in relation to ourselves. And I think just maybe a little simple litmus test that we can use, a question to ask ourselves, uh, you know, inwardly, and only we can answer answer, answer this question truthfully, When we're thinking about or when we have occasion to confront sin in another person's life or error, we can ask this question, am I as emotionally bothered by my own sin as I am towards this other person? That's a simple question. You can discern that. Am I as bothered by my own sin as I am about this person whom I'm feeling the need to go and speak to? Excuse me. That will help, hopefully, to offset us going in a wrong attitude. But again, with the right heart and the right goal, we do need to do the hard but loving and righteous work of helping one another with sin in our lives that we might be blind to. And the goal, again, is to lead to repentance. So what I want to do this morning is next take our time to look at why do we need to give loving confrontation. Next week, we'll look at reasons why we don't give confrontation, why we don't go to one another, and then we'll look at how we are to receive confrontation from someone else when we are confronted about our own sin or error. But that's next week. This week, I want to look at why do we need to give loving confrontation of sin? Let me note first, the first reason is this. It is a necessary aspect of love. It's a necessary aspect of love. If you're a parent, you know that. Proverbs said, he who spares the rod hates their child. If you love your child, you're going to correct them for sin and disobedience. Those things that are going to bring harm to their life. That's an expression of how we love our children. Of course, like all of these things, it can be done wrongly. But it's no different in how we are to express love, at least in principle. It's different. We we spare the rod for one another, right? Uh, That's with a parental role. But in terms of our care for sin in another person's life that we love. A key verse here is 1 Corinthians 13.6. You know it? It says this, Paul does. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. Now there's two parts to this statement. The first part and the primary meaning here is that love does not find some kind of secret pleasure in the sin of others. It doesn't rejoice in the failings and the sin of others. That's, that's the primary point that he's making. That, of course, is when we're doing that wrongly. It shows up uh, most commonly in what, do you think? Gossip. Gossip. Slander. That kind of thing, where we talk about another person's sin behind their back, but we don't go to them and talk to them about, about it to their face. We might complain behind their back, but we don't complain to them. And love doesn't do that. Love doesn't do that. Love doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. A secondary meaning here is this, that Even though it's first about we don't rejoice in the sin of another, it includes the idea that love does not comfortably tolerate sin. It rather seeks to bring about and pursue righteousness in one another and to bring another in line with the truth who has strayed, who has strayed away from it. The opposite of unrighteousness in this verse is the truth. And the reason that it is that way is because truth and living according to the truth is Righteous. That's where righteousness is displayed and it leads to righteousness. So the first part is it's a necessary aspect of love. If we love somebody, we are going to care about what is best for their life, which means we are going to address sin. Under that, we could note this. 
under the same point. It's a false view of love then that tolerates sin. It's a false view of love that tolerates sin. A failure to confront and admonish one another in cases of genuine acts of sin is a failure to love them. And it also is a failure to understand the true nature and danger of sin. If you love someone, what do you want? You want what's best for them, right? You want what is going to be the most helpful in their life. You want what is going to bring, as a Christian, you want what is going to bring God's blessing to their life, God's care in their life, what's going to lead them to greater communion with God, usefulness to God in His kingdom. If you love them, that's what you want for one another. And that's what I hope we want from others towards ourselves to help us in that endeavor, to help us in that kind of life. And so if we love somebody, we're going to be concerned when we see sin in their life. Because we know sin brings death. Sin brings consequences. Sin brings discipline. So if we truly love them, it's like seeing someone you love on heroin or on drugs or doing some kind of destructive lifestyle, are you just going to stand by and watch them or are you going to intervene in their life and say, you're doing something wrong and you're doing something that's going to bring great harm to yourself and I want to help you. It's a similar idea in relation to love and how we deal with sin in one another's life. We want what is best for someone and if we see sin is destroying them and sin is uh, something that they're, they're blind to, a sin in their life, then we want to go to them and we want to confront them out of love and out of care for them. Paul would say to the church at Ephesus, those famous words, you speak the truth in love. You speak the truth in love. And with this is another point that not to confront error then is a failure to love. Not to confront sin and not to confront error is a failure to love. Let me illustrate this Uh, with the life of the Apostle Paul, who was in much of his ministry out of love for the churches, writing to them, confronting those things that were coming in and destroying them, that were presenting or that was presenting a great danger to their soul and their profession of Christ. When Paul confronted false teachers in 2 Corinthians 11, he called them workers of Satan. Workers of Satan. He was very strong in his condemnation of them because they were presenting spiritual danger to a church that he loved. And that was exactly why he used the language that he did. He used such self-defacing language, even though he was boasting. He says, I rather would boast in my weakness, but he says, I'm brought to this what is for me a humiliation to have to speak to you this way. But I'm so utterly concerned for you that I have to confront both those who are bringing you danger and you who are in peril of following their lies and their deceptions. But listen to the heart of Paul when he's doing this. Look in verses 10 through 11 in 2 Corinthians 11. His heart is so often on his sleeve in the best sense of it that in the best sense of that he says in verse 10 as the truth of Christ is in me this boasting of mine will not be stopped in the regions of Achaia why because i do not love you god knows that i do and what i am doing in verse 12 i will continue to do so that i may cut off opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the matter about which they are boasting and then again he identifies them as the false apostles deceitful workers uh, so on and so forth but paul is doing this the point i'm bringing out is because he loved them He had such a great love for them. He had such a great care for them. He had such a concern that they would be led into sin and to error that he was compelled and he was provoked and he was driven to write to them to confront their sin and the sin of those who were a threat to them. He loved them. And so he took time to humble himself and he took concern to humble himself and to speak very directly and to address the danger of their souls. As a matter of fact, he would say later in 2 Corinthians 11 that outside of all the physical things he suffered, and we're well familiar with this, 
But out of all of the physical things that he suffered, out of all of the, the pain and the hunger and the thirst and the cold and the dangers and all of those things, he said, there's nothing that presses on my soul. There's nothing that causes me emotional anguish and turmoil. There's nothing that keeps me up at night more than this. My great concern for all the churches. He says in verse 28 of 2 Corinthians 11, Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Listen to him. Oh, I wish I was more like this. But he says in verse 29, Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? You see, he loved them. And he loved them so much that he was intensely concerned with sin in their life. And he was committed to do whatever he could do as an apostle to protect them from sin. Even if it meant pointing out their own sin. Even if it meant warning them. Even if it meant exposing these false teachers. Even when it meant humbling himself greatly. He was willing to do whatever he had to do out of his love for them. He was willing to confront their sin. In chapter 12, verses 14, he says, Here for this third time I'm ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden to you, for I do not seek what is yours, but you. Of course, he was charged with being greedy and exploiting the Corinthians for what they could give him. And he says, I don't seek those things. What I seek is you. For children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. He says, I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? If I, if I love you more, in this case more, by pointing out your sin and your error and the danger that you're in. Remember earlier in chapter 7, he talks about a severe letter that he wrote confronting them on their sin. And he says, I see that it caused you sorrow. And I did regret writing it. But then I didn't regret writing it because I saw that the sorrow that it produced in you was actually a godly sorrow that led to repentance, which leads to life, rather than the worldly sorrow, which only leads to death. And so so I'm glad that I wrote it. But again, he saw, because of his great love for them, that he needed to address that sin. And even in that case, in the severe letter, he needed to address it quite pointedly, quite severely, quite directly. But he did so because he loved them. So confrontation of sin in one another's life is and must flow out of the love that we have for one another. The care for one another's souls. Those things that we see that might bring harm and damage to those individuals or a body of believers. Love doesn't look the other way. Love doesn't rationalize. Love intervenes and addresses those concerns out of care for them. So that's the first point. Secondly, and I'll speed it up here. It's necessary for the witness and the purity and the unity of the church. Why should we confront one another? It's necessary that we confront sin out of love for one another. And it's necessary that we confront sin in the body out of concern for the witness and the purity and the unity of the church. You could say this, you could summarize it and say, out of our love for Christ. Out of our love for Christ and our love for his glory in this world. Let's consider the witness of the church. The testimony of righteousness in God's people is a significant part of her witness, her being the church, to the glory of God in the world. In other words, a significant part of the witness of the world, of the church to the world, is her righteousness, her holiness. She is distinct from the world. She is marked by holiness. That's why God told Israel, and he tells in the New Testament, he repeats this in 1 Peter 1, you are to be holy as I am holy. That's the purpose of all of these in the terms of the Mosaic law, all of these laws that I'm giving so that you would be distinct among all the people. My glory rests on that distinction. He says that to the church. And said by the church, it is primarily her righteousness in relation to her faith in Christ. Jesus said this, Let your light shine among men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Negatively then, when there is sin in God's people, an error, it invites cause for others to blaspheme his name. Just briefly, this is dramatically illustrated in Paul's rebuke to the Jews in Romans chapter 2. I'll read it. Don't turn there for time's sake. 
Uh, The reference is Romans 2, verses 23 through 24. But he says this to them. He says, you who boast in the law, through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. If you went back and read Ezekiel 36 and 20 and following, you'd see where Paul is basing this off of God's own rebuke to the nation of Israel. He was addressing a nation that was being primed for judgment. And he says, I'm going to act for my own sake and for my own glory. But you, O Israel, this is Ezekiel 36, have profaned my name among the nations. And so he says, I'm not acting for your sake, I'm acting for my sake. Paul's picking up on one part of that and he's saying, look, you who claim the law, you who claim to be the people of God, when you disobey that law, then you are bringing ridicule upon the name of God. And that's how it works, even in the church. Uh, I can think of, I always think of, and you maybe have had these similar uh, situations. I, I just, I worked with someone who, you know, God knows if he was a believer or not. I tend to think he was, but he was uh, not the most obedient believer very often. And his language was foul and so on and so forth. His attitude not reflecting the gentleness of Christ. And so I told him one time, I said, please just don't tell anybody you're a Christian. <laughs> Keep it a secret. Normally you wouldn't want to tell somebody that, but the idea is like you, you do much more harm by saying you're a Christian. Uh, just don't act like it. I mean, just don't tell anybody until you start acting like it. And so that's the idea here. So we should be concerned because of the testimony of Christ. Let me give you another example of that just really briefly. In 1 Timothy 5.14, Paul admonishes the church and he says this. Therefore, I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy, here's the key, give the enemy no occasion for reproach. In other words, if you don't do these things, You're opened up, in this case, to a life of sinful wantonness. And that life of sinful wantonness is then going to bring a reproach and a bad testimony on the church. As a matter of fact, in verse 13, just before that, he said that a lot of these widows being idle with their time, he says they were going around from house to house, not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies talking about things not proper to mention. So in other words, Paul's saying, look, your sin is, to, is bringing reproach on the name of Christ. And so he addressed it. He admonished them. He exhorted them. And we are to have that same attitude towards one another. He says in chapter 6, verse 1, All who are under the yoke of slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. In other words, if they don't honor God, then it's going to be spoken against. Paul is addressing that as an apostle. But that's a picture then of what we should do. If you're in the workplace and you work with somebody else who names the name of Christ and they're not performing their work honorably and to the glory of God, it is a responsibility that we have as a fellow Christian and believer to go to that person and address their sin to call them to repentance, to recognize the disobedience in their life. If we don't do that, we're actually failing in our responsibility as a Christian. This is repeated in other places. I won't go to all of them. Titus 2, 5, and 8 addresses some of the same things. So we need to be concerned. This is the big point. We need to confront sin in one another's lives out of a concern for the name of Christ, out of this concern for sin that would bring a reproach on the name of Christ. If we care about the name of Christ, we see somebody doing something that is dishonoring him, then we need to go to that person and we need to address it. Uh, This means, of course, also that we're to address error, theological error, not only sin, but theological error. We already saw that as one example of Paul in 2 Corinthians 11. We are to address error. And let me just make as a footnote here, this is the great lie of ecumenism, which in and of itself is not bad. We should want to join, we should want to be in harmony with brethren. But the problem with ecumenism, as it's presented, is that truth is secondary to the unity, and they say truth is secondary to love. And of course, that is a false dichotomy. That is not a biblical kind of unity. Unexamined, unthought about, that may sound good on the surface. However, Christian unity is based on the reality of the gospel and true union with Christ, possession of the spirit and truth. 
In other words, truth cannot be made a casualty of unity. Unity is formed around the truth of the gospel and an adherence to that. Once it is, once truth is set aside, once truth is no longer made the, the cornerstone of our unity, the truth that is about Christ and the saving knowledge of Christ, then whatever unity is promoted, it's not a unity of the Spirit. It's the kind of unity, in fact, that will be displayed under the kingdom of the Antichrist. It's a unity of error rather than a unity of truth. Um, I guess here's another footnote to that, is this, is that an opposite error is also sometimes common, and particularly in the age of the Internet. Again, this is just a little part of social media or the internet use. This isn't specifically social media. But it's in these of what are often called or titled discernment ministries. You ever run across those? Discernment ministries. In which the whole focus of these discernment ministries, and this clearly fits under the idea of loving confrontation, the whole goal of these discernment ministries very often is simply to commit themselves to searching out and finding and exposing every error that they can find within the Christian church. And unfortunately, very often, it's not the kind of errors that should be the most concerned about. In other words, those that relate to the deity of Christ, the nature of God as a triune God, and the nature of the atonement, and those kind of things. Sometimes they do little more, it seems like, than seek to expose the sins or perceived sins of others who simply do not agree with them. They set themselves up as the guardians of truth, the discerners of all that is wrong and dangerous in Christianity. And there's much in these ministries, lest I be misunderstood, that conservative Bible-believing Christians would agree with. That we would hold up and say, yes, that is true. And there is even a benefit sometimes in them in these ministries or those who commit themselves to it. In in that it might expose things that otherwise we would be unaware of. Teachers that we would be unaware of. Events that we would be unaware of. However, the temptation of these ministries is this. There's a temptation to self-righteousness and a lack of love. A tendency to be adept at detecting fault in others, but having little criticism of self, the very thing Jesus warned against. This is different, mind you, lest this get confused, than biblical apologetics, which is a defense of the faith, a defense of the true core fundamental truths of the faith. We're talking about discernment ministries, which aren't engaged so much in apologetics, which apologetics has as its emphasis and aim the positive promotion of truth. The positive promotion of the gospel. Whereas discernment ministries, the emphasis is all negative. The exposure of error. And very little in them is often directed towards the positive affirmation of truth. It's just this consistent affirmation of what is wrong and what is unholy uh, according to them. And again, it's not to say that a lot of times the things pointed out aren't right. It is just to say that there is a question sometimes in the tone and the attitude and the usefulness of it. Uh, As a matter of fact, Paul says this in Titus 3, 9, But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strifes and disputes about the law. They are unprofitable and worthless. He repeats that other times. Don't get tangled up in all that stuff. Don't spend your life trying to point that stuff out. It's meaningless. Be a positive focus and proclaimer of what is true. Defend as necessary, but defend what is true. Don't spend all your time getting lost on what is wrong and what is an error. It's unprofitable. It's not very helpful. And that also then is on a personal warning to us, one, and how much influence we might sometimes be gained from those if somebody finds themselves always going to that. But sometimes that confronting of sin can be uh, true among us, that it's like, okay, if I'm going to be obedient to the Lord, then I need to always be on the lookout for how my brethren are sinning, and I need to be faithful to the Lord and uh, point it out. Uh, That certainly is not the case. Now, we support... I don't know if I should say this publicly... Well, I will, because it can be helpful, and you'll know how it's meant. Sometimes with biblical counseling, we support nuthetic counseling or biblical counseling and those kind of things. We, we absolutely support that and promote that 100%. But sometimes when there is an interest in counseling or an admonishment kind of ministry, and I've experienced this uh, and had struggles and relationships of friendships uh, with this personally. And this is just maybe a slight way sometimes where that can err uh, 
in my perspective. It's like everything becomes a sin issue. Every conversation is uncovering some heart motivation. Do you see what I'm saying? It's like, it's, it's hard to have some normal conversation where there isn't this sort of guided path to try and find out your true motivations and hidden and secret sins. And I've experienced relationships where it's very hard to have them. And it's like, man, I'm, I'm, I've told you everything I can. I feel like every conversation is trying to, you know, uncover something. And so we want to be careful of that in our lives too. Somehow always having this discernment alert on to try to find out what's wrong and where there's error and strain and what the hidden motivation is in each other's lives. There is a graciousness and a generosity that we should have in relating to one another, even though, as we're talking about, we need to be willing to confront sin when necessary. Uh, Let me mention one other thing here, and then we'll have to continue next week. It's important to confront sin also for the protection of the church. It's important to confront sin because it's a necessary expression of love. It's important to confront sin because we care about what happens in one another's life. We confront sin because we're concerned about the testimony of Christ. And we need to confront sin for the protection of the church against evil influence. Protection of the church against evil influence. And I'm going to just make this last point and then we'll pick it up next week. Uh, While we must guard against a legalistic, pharisaical judgmentalism, we at the same time must defend sound doctrine. Why we need to be on guard against the tendency to be the the sort of truth police and the doctrine police about everybody that we meet. At the same time, we do need to be concerned about doctrine. And a particular problem with discernment ministries isn't the idea of pointing out error. It is that that's the whole emphasis of it. It is the tone that comes along with it. But we do need to be greatly concerned about error in general and in one another's life. As a matter of fact, this is a qualification for eldership. An elder must be able to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. The leaders of the church and we as the church need to pursue to be able to do those things. Exhort one another in sound doctrine and at the same time contradict when false doctrine comes in. The longer sin and error is not dealt with in the church or in our own lives, uh, the more influence it is Excuse me, it is allowed to assert. And let me just make this briefly before we wrap it up this morning. In 1 Corinthians 5, this is most evident. You're familiar with this passage. Paul is dealing with immorality in the church. He says, actually, it is reported in verse 1, there is immorality among you, immorality of such a kind as does not even exist among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. Most likely this is his mother-in-law, not his biological Mother, But in either case, he's saying that, look, even the Gentiles wouldn't do that. What did they do? Well, in verse 2, he says, You have become arrogant, and you have not mourned instead, so that the one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst. And they most likely had this sort of arrogant attitude of how tolerant they were, how accepting they were of this erring brother, how how much love they were really extending to him by not putting him out, but rather accepting him just as he is. That's, again, much of what we see in the church. And not new to us. This is through the history of the church. This is an issue. But nonetheless, he says, that's not love. He says, that's rather arrogance. And why is it arrogance? Why would it be arrogance? That's kind of interesting, don't you think, when you first read that? It's arrogance because this. Because they have replaced God's standard of holiness and what love is with their own view. And in doing so, they've mocked God's righteousness and his standard. And he says, that's arrogant. That's arrogant. Those are, that's Paul's words, not mine. He said, you rather should have mourned so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. The most loving thing you could do to this person and the greatest demonstration of your love for Christ is not to accept him without qualification, but rather to remove him. Get him out of there, uh, this particular person. And then Paul says, I'm going to do that in verse 3. Though I'm absent, I'm present in spirit. I've already judged him. This is a right kind of judging. Who has committed this. He says in the name, verse 4, of the Lord Jesus, when you're assembled, I with you in spirit with the power of the Lord. He says, I delivered such a one over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. And the most 
uh, reasonable implication here is that Paul's saying, look, I've put him outside of the protection of the church and I've handed him over to do whatever Satan was going to do to him in the world, but I've done that so that he would be humbled and ultimately preserved. preserved. But he's saying you need to get him out. And in verse 6, he says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know? And here's the key. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened, for Christ is our Passover has been sacrificed, and so on. He says, therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Simplified, the big point is just this. When sin is allowed to remain unchecked within the body, it has a wicked influence on the whole body. And in fact, its evil influence spreads far beyond that individual to the witness of the church and the health and care of everybody else in the church. You think about this if you had, go with your own children. You want to take care of the kind of friends that they have because of the influence, the kind of group that they're involved with. It's the same kind of principle. You can think of other examples. Because evil has an evil influence. And Paul is saying the most loving thing that you can do is to demonstrate that sin is destructive both to his own soul and to the testimony of the church. And the most loving thing you can do is kick him out. Get him out of there. Exclude yourself. Let them feel the consequences of their own sin. Not to be harsh, but because you're concerned about holiness. And you're concerned about the honor and the testimony of Christ. As a matter of fact, just as a little side note to that, Paul says this in Titus 3.10. Might be kind of shocking. He says, avoid foolish controversies, genealogy, strife, disputes about the law. They're unprofitable and worthless. And then he says this in verse 10. Reject a factious man and after a first and a second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. That's because Paul loved the church. He loved the people in the church. And he loved and he cared for them and their spiritual good. And so he says, if you have a factious man, so Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 is dealing with immorality. In Titus chapter 3, he's dealing with somebody who's causing division. And he says, you need to address that and you need to get rid of that. You need to get them out of there. They're causing divisions within the church. And that's not good for the life and the health of the church. So, sin that is allowed to remain in the body, either known sin that mars the testimony and unity of the church, or sin that breaks fellowship with believers, we, out of love, are to confront that sin. We're to go to that person privately. We're to deal with that sin as a church because we love them, because we care for them, because we care for the church and the health of the body. We'll pick it up next week and note that loving confrontation is good then for the spiritual growth and unity of the church. And we'll try to finish that quickly, uh, those last points, and then get into uh, how we are to receive uh, loving confrontation and, and some reasons why we would give it. Let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer and, and ask the Lord that he would help us then to have his own heart and his own concern his own love for his people and that we would be humble and faithful members of his body dealing with sin. Father, we thank you for your word. It's so hard to confront sin. Sometimes just out of that sincerity of realizing that who are we because we know that there's so much in our own lives that we constantly need grace for. But Lord, let that not be a reason to make us inert and to be inactive and doing the things that we should do, but rather let it be the reason that we do them in humility and that we do them with a great sense of care and a love for the other person. And that's so easy to acknowledge in principle. It's so hard to live out sometimes. In fact, it is impossible to live out that kind of love except we have your spirit and that the spirit of God who unites us to Christ is in us empowering us to live with this kind of love, and with this kind of courage. And so help us, Lord, to be first those who are people who are dealing with our own sin, who are recognizing areas in our own life that we need to repent of and 
that we need grace. Make us first those people and then secondarily the people that can be useful and helpful in the lives of others and helping them grow into maturity to be protected from wrong paths and error that they might know the joy and the blessing of the grace that is in Christ and in a life that lives righteously. Indeed, Lord, let our confrontation be ultimately marked by love and your glory. Help us in these things, I pray in the matchless name of Christ. Amen.